Hello, I'm Stuart Preston, and this is the Stone Ape Reports, where I have conversations with those who have changed their lives with the help of psychedelics. In this episode, I had the honor of speaking with Darren. It was actually our second conversation together. The first didn't end up getting published. He'll tell you more about that. But listen to his story. It's a deep story of loss, grief, trauma, hitting rock bottom, and journeying out of all of that with mushrooms, ayahuasca, iboga, and more. So let's hear from Darren. All right, Darren. Well, it's uh, it's great to have you here on the Stone Date Reports podcast. Um, you're a, you're a veteran at this, just like you're a veteran of the military. You know, it's uh, we did this once before, you know, and and some some stuff came up, and since then, you know, you've gone to other ceremony and worked with some of that. And, and we'll get to that later. I know you've got some amazing things to share. Um, I'm glad you came back. I'm glad we're doing this because listening to your story, listening to the things you've, I mean, a lot of people come to this podcast and they've dealt with grief, you know, they've dealt with trauma, they've dealt with law and you have so much, you know, you, you go over all the, the depression, the trauma, the loss and grief, suicidal thoughts. I mean, it's a lot of deep pain, man. And so, you know, you work through several psychedelics, had these amazing results. Today, you work with other people to help them get the same results, but really turn things around. So I'm honored that you you came back because I know you've got some things to share in terms of a, an even more recent, you know, experience from things that, that came up, you know, from, from your past and, and, and some of that. So first of all, thank you for, for coming back and for, for sharing all this. And I'm really glad to talk to you again. Yeah, Stuart, thank you so much as well, because, you know, man, you know, I'll explain it my journey, but when we originally spoke, I had not realized how much stuff I had not spoken about, I had not articulated, and that was still there underneath everything. And that interview that we originally did that I asked you not to post that you so kindly did not publish, it brought it all out. And that's what led to this final journey I had, which was the most transformational journey. So I really, really appreciate you know, everything you've done for me, you've done. A yeah. Lot. Yeah. Of course. I, I, you know, and I don't know, I appreciate that. I don't know how much I did, but you know, one of my questions and maybe I should ask it later, but, um, stuff came out as we were talking. Do you think that your previous work with psychedelics with the medicines, um, prepared your mind and, and your heart to be able to address those things and bring those to the forefront? Do you think that, that you kind of laid a foundation for that to, to happen? Stuart, this whole thing is an amazing journey. It is the hero's journey, just like Joseph Campbell talks yeah. about. It is, it is absolutely the hero's journey. I, everything that I'd done with psychedelics, I'd built tools with how to sit in the journey, with how to sit in real life. I always talk about it. Like when the journey, when the trip gets overwhelming, breathe and observe the journey. Don't be part of the journey and take that tool with you into real life. And I had done all those things and those things that helped me, you know, throughout my life after I'd started taking psychedelics with the tremendous grief and depression, and anxiety I had. Um, but in the final journey, they didn't work. They were like weapons that no longer worked against the monster. And that monster is our ego. And mm. with our conversation that we had, there were still parts of the ego that the ego is so devious. It was still there and it, it changes, it transforms how it interacts, but it was still there. And our conversation brought it out, uh, brought out the little last remnants of it. And I'm, you know, I don't know. I have a different perspective on the ego now. I used to say, hey, the ego's not bad. It's our childhood. It's our child. It's our inner child. But now I wonder if our inner child is pure. I, I look at how we come into this world as babies and we're full of laughter and joy and love and compassion. And we develop those traits. We develop 
shame and guilt and anger and resentment. We develop that as we grow up. So I wonder if that is really part of us or if it's just our adaptation to this world, which is what the ego is. Yeah, it's interesting. I remember us talking about that um, in one of my recent journeys. I discovered that my ego is a beautiful thing. You know, that's one of the lessons I got from it. I had spent so much time um, with so many emotions or everything from self-loathing to feeling, you know, helpless, helplessness and thinking, okay, well, my ego sucks. And then I had this, uh, this journey that was like, no, dude, your, your ego is actually a beautiful thing. Just learn how to live with it and understand what it is. So I, and, and you, at the time you were like, oh yeah, you know, your ego is great. And then, so it, it's another amazing thing to hear you come back and say, well, I'm kind of reevaluating the ego after all this. So, um, so just, yeah, tell us, tell us what's going on. Tell us, let's, let's get into it. What's, what's going on with you? You know, where do you want to start? Um, well, I, I think what I can do, and I just want to answer your question. One last thing real quick. Oh, yeah. You know, without, without the ego, we would not be pressed. We would not hit rock bottom hard enough to want to transform. So all of these things work together as painful and as devious and as cruel as the ego can be. It also is the thing that says, okay, enough. I need to transform this, right? If we lived a life of pure joy and bliss, we would never want to transform. Yeah. So it's an interesting process. Um, but perhaps um, I can talk about, um, you know, I'll tell you a little bit about myself and I can talk about why I chose to take plant medicines, plant teachers in the first place. Would that, mm -hmm. that work? And then Perfect. go into my journey. Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. So um, my name is Darren Wendroff. I'm a, um, uh, in the plant teacher world, plant medicine world. I'm currently a senior integration coach at SoulQuest Ayahuasca Church in Orlando, Florida. I do on-site integration there at SoulQuest. And I also lead the bi-weekly integration call every uh, two weeks. Um, they have many calls they do, but I lead one of them. I'm a private integration uh, guide, a psychedelic integration guide. I've worked with Hoppe, Cannabis, Cambo, Mushrooms, ayahuasca and iboga and i've worked with all of them very intentfully which i'll talk about um so i guess you know let me just talk about why i took these plant medicines in the first place because i had always been what i would say a square like a straight arrow like i didn't even drink that much um i didn't like to lose control you know mm -hmm. um so so when i was 13 my parents divorced and that was the most pivotal event in my entire life. Up until then, they had been fighting and we knew it was coming. And I loved my parents tremendously. I was a sensitive child. I was overly sensitive. There were so many cases that showed examples of this weird empathy I had as a child. But um, my parents divorced and I loved both of them tremendously. And I was 13 at the time. And you know, what a time for a parent to divorce, parents to divorce, right? You're going through puberty, you're going through changes, you're changing from middle school to high school. Mm -hmm. And it was absolutely the most devastating event of my life. I, I remember them, you know, we, we having dinner one day and my mom and dad telling me they were going to separate and it was, a, it was for the best. And I was just crushed. And in the divorce, they were, they were, um, you know, they were possessed. They were possessed by fear, by resentment, by anger. I don't think my father wanted to divorce. I don't think my mother did either, but she knew she had to. She knew that her and my dad were different people and it wasn't going to work out and neither of them were going to be happy. And, and we had seen signs of it. You know, there had been so many arguments leading to that divorce. So they divorced and my father moved back to Donnellan. I grew up in Gainesville, Florida. I have a younger brother, four years younger than me. And, I, um, and we lived with my mom. 
And my dad had joint custody and they were going through the divorce and the divorce took four years, four years, wow. like from 13 to 17. As soon as the divorce ended, or as soon as I turned 17, I joined the army. I was literally 17 when I went to the army. I got in early. You can get in earlier than 18 if you uh, request it a certain way. So, but at 13, my parents divorced and they were arguing with each other back and forth and they would use me to argue with each other. I became the emissary. Is that the right word? The emissary to, to argue between the two of them. And mm. what would happen is my, when I'd go visit my dad in Dunellen, my mom would say, hey, make sure your father pays the alimony. He hasn't paid alimony because they were fighting in court about it. Yeah. So I would go see my dad and I would go yell at him. I would say, dad, how come you haven't paid Ma the alimony? And I'm 13 years old. And my dad, who just wanted to be with his kids, you know, he, he, um, he would get so upset at me and he'd say, you better tell your mother that you shouldn't be involved with this and she shouldn't be fighting through you. And this is between her and I, and you have no right to get involved with, with our matters. And he would yell at me and I'd fight with him. So then he would send me back home and I would fight with my mom and I would be like, Ma, you know, why are you sending me to dad yelling at him? You know, I should have nothing to do with this. And I'd yell at her about other things. Cause obviously what happens is number one is children. We don't understand. And yeah. Our parents are also children. They don't, you know, they're adults, but we look at them as gods and we think they should know everything and they don't, they're just people. You know, I realize that now because I'm 45 and I look at my own life and I'm like, my God, they were the same as me. You know, I don't understand how to do these things and how would they understand? And I have even more knowledge at my fingertips than they did, more, even more mm -hmm. insights. So, but you know, at that time I was 13 and I was just, just this, this, this curled fist of, of sadness and depression and anxiety and anger and resentment and confusion. So I'm just going back and forth between my two parents, just yelling at them constantly. And my whole childhood from 13 to 17 is just fighting with my parents, fighting, fighting, fighting. And I remember going to school and at school was very confusing. I went to a very tough school um, where like I was Hispanic and it was kind of, you know, it was kind of not a very open school to people who were like me, you know, different. Mm -hmm. and, and, and before that, I went to a school called Yankee Town that was definitely not an open school to people. Yeah, of open of different ethnicities. I used to get called all kinds of racist names. Mm. I used to be treated very poorly by the bus driver, by certain teachers, by children. So and, you know, it's funny, I look back at my childhood and it never I didn't think it stuck with me, but it did because, you know, these things go into the unconscious. And luckily I had a tremendous sense of humor, which allowed me to deflect so much was my defense mechanism. But at the same time, I was absorbing all of this. So now fast forward to my parents, they're divorcing. I'm going through high school and the situation's out of control. And for four years, I just bounced back and forth between my mom and my dad, just so angry and upset and depressed and arguing between the two of them and being the emissary of, of their, their divorce. And, you know, I realize now we're, we were all just gripped with fear and, and we we're all gripped with fear. Like they, my mom didn't know, my dad didn't know what was going to happen. My mom had to raise two kids. My dad didn't want this divorce to happen. He just wanted to be with his kids. I'm of course a child. And that, that experience set the course for the rest of my life, for the rest of my life until the day mm. I took those mushrooms. At 44, I had severe anxiety and depression, clinical anxiety, depression, suicidal tendencies, suicidal ideation for those, those next 30, 35 years, you know, 32 years, uh, 33 years, I had those things in my life. And I remember I joined the army at 17, you know, 
all these things happened, these amazing things in my life. I joined the army. I was in the Peace Corps. I tried out for the special forces. I graduated magna cum laude of, of the University of Florida in journalism. I worked for Men's Health. I was editor of this really great magazine called Kiteboarding. I did all these amazing things. And I remember I was never, ever happy. I was always like, no, I have to do this other thing. I have to do this other thing. Like I accomplished the goal of being an editor. I accomplished the goal of, of graduating magna cum laude. I accomplished the goal of being the Peace Corps. And no matter what I did, I was always like, you know, there's something else I have to do. Once I reach this, I'll be happy. Once I reach this, I'll be happy. I have to... And, you know, I had these beautiful relationships that I was in. And no matter what I was in, I was never happy. There was always something else that was going to make me more happy. That was going to be the final thing. And I remember just constantly chasing that throughout my 20s and 30s and into my 40s. And I just wasn't happy. I was tremendously depressed. I was always anxious. I, I was always resentful. My parents resentful of the world. I still tried to love, I still tried to be there for people, but I didn't know how, I had no idea how. I was a lost soul without a doubt, possessed. And it would come and go, you know, I remember some days I couldn't sleep. Um, there was just so much, the depression and anxiety that I had, but it was actually absolutely overwhelming throughout my life. I'm so surprised that I survived it. And I had several suicide attempts that a lot of people don't know about. And there were things that I did quietly and, and it didn't work, luckily. Um, but, you know, I just remember surviving that time in my life, my 20s, my 30s. And, um, you know, fast forward, um, I end up having like, I think I was 32 or 35 and I bought a home because everybody was buying homes in 2006. And of course, 2006 was not yeah. the time to buy a home, 2007. And I, I closed on my home in 2007. I remember this. I was like, this is going to make me happy. Like everybody that I know is buying homes. This is yeah. what I need to do. Bought my home. Literally, like, it must, I, I literally, the day after, the hour after I closed on the house, I said, oh my God, I've made a horrible mistake. <laughs> then a day later or a week later, I discovered that the home was infested with mold. So then I was like, oh, oh my gosh, this home that I can barely afford is infested with mold. Then about a month later, we have the housing crisis really starting to hit full tilt. And I just have a nervous breakdown. I remember like I'm in my home and I can't get out of bed and I'm going to work some days and I'm going to sleep on the car ride on, I would pull over on the side of the road and cry and then go and put, fall asleep on my way to work and then get to work and just barely make it through the day. And I'm a magazine editor at the time and they have all these stories for me and I realized I'm not going to get through this and I have a nervous breakdown and I, I enter myself, I Baker Act myself because I realized that if I don't do something, I'm going to hurt myself. And I get out of there. My mom comes and gets me. She helps me with the house. We end up like redoing the house ourselves. My mom helps me. And that helps a little bit. And I have to leave my job because I realize I can't be a magazine editor anymore. I move in with my mom, even though I have the house. I find someone to rent the house. And through my mom, she's able to help me recover. You know, I'd hit rock bottom there. And she's helped me to help me. She's able to help me recover. Mm -hmm. And I thought I'd ruined my life. And through that, my brother and I start a business. Like my brother was an accountant at the time. He just started a firm and he said, Darren, I really need your help. I need someone to help, help me like really manage this business. And, you know, I want to communicate better with people. So I'm a magazine editor. I say, yeah, B, let's do it. My brother's name is Brian, but I call his nickname. His name is BJ. That's what he always grew up with. So I call him B. So um, we, we run the business and it ends up like, how can I put this? Like, we end up doing things that have never been done with an accounting firm. We communicate with our clients differently. We're, we're very proactive. I do things online that are very different. And we end up really exploding the business. Every year we're doubling. And I remember at the time my dad would tell me sometimes, like, Darren, you made it. You made it. How does it feel? I, I would get so upset at him. I'd be like, Dad, 
you have no right to tell me I've made it. Like we're struggling every day. And I realized now how crazy that was what I said to him, hmm. but I was so upset at him. So I still carried this anger and resentment. And, but you know, I love my father. Uh, it's confusing. It's a confusing relationship at the time. So being BJ, we grow this business and it's really tough because while we're growing it, we're doubling in size every year. I'm also fighting with my brother because I'm fearful. I'm so fearful of losing this business and he's fearful, but in a different way. So I'm fighting with him all the time. But BJ, this is how you do this. This is how you do this. This is how you talk to clients. This is how you communicate. And we have a lot of really intense arguments and BJ is very sad. He tells me, Hey, Darren, you know, I love what we're doing with the business, but I don't want to ruin our relationship over this business. And at the time I'm trying to make change because I can realize that this is happening. I'm arguing with him so much, but I'm possessed. Even though I realize it, I'm possessed by this, whatever I'm possessed by. And it goes forward and we're having all these arguments. And then in 2012, our business has grown to the point where I'd been teleworking from Orlando at the time. I realized I have to come to Arlington, Virginia, to DC to run the business with him in person. So we decided to do that. I moved to DC in, in December 2000, uh, 2011. I moved to DC. In April 2012, my mom calls me. And I remember being in my office. And I remember John, John Mayer, Heart of Life, playing on the radio while my mom tells me that Darren, they think I have stomach cancer. They think I have cancer. And at the time, my mom, who, if you ever saw her, she was, she was 68. She looked like she was 40. She was tremendously beautiful and vivacious. She used to dance every week. She used to go play volleyball every Sunday. She was like a kid. And I still, my heart breaks talking about her because she was just this beautiful person. Mm. And, <laughs> you know, just to think that this person, like so incredibly healthy, organic, eating, always cooked for herself, love life. She, she had been throwing up for like the past two weeks and we didn't know why. And we thought it was an ulcer and the doctors would tell her, no, it's an ulcer. Don't worry about it. And finally she said, no, something is wrong. She requested a certain type of scan of her stomach and they found out she had stomach cancer. <sighs> she told me, she said, she said, Darren, they think I have cancer. <sighs> and I remember that song playing and I always connect that song to my life. My mom, heart of life. It's called mm -hmm. beautiful song. And it absolutely described the situation I was going through. And, and I, um, I immediately, I said, BJ, um, you're going to have to take care of the firm. I'm going to move and back home and take care of Ma. And of course, BJ was like, yes, of course. So BJ took care of the firm. I went and BJ at the time was having a child. He was supposed to have his child hmm. in July, I believe. And, and my, it was going to be my mom's first grandchild. And she was so happy. She was so excited about, she was buying toys for this grandchild. Hmm. So then I moved back and Almost immediately, you know, the stomach cancer takes hold. It's stage four stomach cancer. It's as extreme as stage four stomach cancer can be. We, try, we, we went and found researchers. We went and tried to do everything we could for my mom, but the, the disease took hold quickly. And within three months, within, you know, tax season in May, June, July, August, right. So my brother was supposed to have the child in August. In, my mom found out in, in April. By May, she was in the hospital getting chemotherapy and it was bad. It was bad. She tried to fight it. May, June, July, uh, she tried to fight it and she could not. The disease was too powerful and we knew it. And we realized, mm. you know, I remember, I remember when it happened, my mom was in, she had just 
what happened was the chemotherapy and the disease was so bad that it had, it had torn a hole in her stomach and her, her lungs were leaking into her stomach and they'd done some sort of surgery on her. And she was in the hospital, just gotten through the surgery and she was recovering. And, you know, my mom was just deteriorating and the doctor came up to me and said, Darren, I think your mom can fight this. I don't think you should choose hospice. And I was like, fuck you. Like my mom, and I'm sorry to cuss, but I remember how I felt that moment. I said, my mom is not dying in this hospital bed. And we, yeah. uh, we chose hospice. We chose hospice. There's no way I was going to let my mom die in that hospital bed. And I saw she was suffering. Yeah. For some reason, we knew how to choose hospice. We knew this was the choice we should make, you know, because most people fight this. And my mom, and my mom, I remember she told me, Darren, if you want, I'll fight this. And I said, Ma, no, wow. we're going to hospice. And we put her in hospice and she immediately started recovering. You know, they took her off mm -hmm. all the meds, everything. And, and for a week she was back. Like she couldn't get out of bed, but we were dancing with her in bed. I have a video of it. We're all laughing and the family came down and her aunt had come down and they had been fighting and then reconciled. And my aunt Gloria was loving her. And we all, we were all just laughing and enjoying it. And, you know, we, you know how, it, I don't know if you, if you've ever been there, but you get fooled, you know, you think, mm -hmm. oh, she's going to come back. She's going to come back. They always say that, right? They went to yeah. hospice and then they lived another two or three years and we we're like, she's going to come back. And she was good for a week. And then it started coming back and started getting worse and worse. And we knew she wasn't going to come back. And the doctor or the nurse, one of the nurses, she told me, she said, I see it happen all the time. She said, the strongest people, this is how it happens. They the disease does not take them little by little. When you're sick, when you're always sick, the disease takes you little by little. You live four or five years because you're hmm. always dying. But your mother was so strong that when the disease took her, it had to be stronger. And the only way it can be stronger is to overwhelm that strength. And once it overwhelms it, 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 it defeats it, it wins. And that's what happened to my mom. She was so strong that she didn't know she had stomach cancer for months or a year until yeah. it was stage four and it ravaged her body. And so then, you know, she, we knew she was passing and she, um, she ended up passing like a month before my brother's child was born before her first grandchild was born. <sighs> and, and I remember thinking like, why, why did this person, this beautiful human with so much love to share in this world and so much to look forward to one month from now, why did she pass? Like everything in my life had made sense up to that point. The, the nervous breakdown, I had realized I had to go through that to work with my brother to build this business that was successful. You know, everything else in my life, the divorce, me joining the army, all these things had meaning, but this did not have meaning. This had no meaning. It had no meaning that my mom would die a month before her grandson was born, her first grandson, and that this person had been healthy and full of love her whole life would die in this way, the way she was most scared of dying had absolutely no meaning. And I had this spiritualism, spirituality that was absolutely devastated and rocked. And I just lost all meaning in my life. And, you know, so then I go back and I go to work with my brother. It's like August, September at this point, we get through the year and BJ has had his first child and he just wants to provide for that child. And he's so scared of the business because I'm always threatening him and we're having arguments, but at the same time, I'm trying to change. And BJ you know, we have an argument one day and it's enough. And BJ says, Darren, I have to kick you out of the business. And him and I were partners. He couldn't kick me out, but he said, I have to kick you out of this business. And at that time I gave up. I just said, you know what? Forget it. And BJ kicked me out of the business. We had an argument over the compensation. I was ready to take my life that week. 
I went to the gun store. I bought a gun. I was ready to take my life. And for some reason I didn't. And I ended up pawning that gun and I just, I didn't. And it was a weird week. BJ had said, Darren, I have to kick you out of the business. I don't want you to come back to work on Monday. That whole week, I didn't know what to do. Him and I didn't talk. And then him and I spoke a week later and that was the week I was going to take my life. And him and I spoke a week later and he said, Darren, uh, he's like, this is a conversation. This is how we're going to work. This is the only thing I think can work. I just was like ready to do anything. Cause I was like, cause I was gonna take my life. I didn't care. I was fighting mm-hmm. with him, but at the same time, I was just like, screw it. And for some reason I didn't take my life for some reason. I, I remember thinking how sad BJ and my dad would be if I had taken my life for some reason. And I was upset at them. I wanted to hurt my brother. And I remember my dad supported me. He said, BJ, you have to give your brother whatever he deserves in his partnership. You can't do this to him. And he was the only one who really came out and supported me. Other friends did, but of my family, he was the one who was vocal about it. He said, BJ, you have to support your brother. You can't do this to him. And I remember being so touched that my dad, you know, would love me like that, that I thought, I thought my dad didn't love me and that he would love me like that. And I remember thinking when I want to take my life, I remember thinking how sad BJ would be, how sad my dad would be. And I said, you know, I can't do this to them. And I didn't take my life. And I ended up moving back to Orlando. Um, I started a business that helped families find caregivers private directly, which was something that I struggled with, with my mom. And I realized, wow, um, you know, maybe this is the reason. Like I had to leave BJ to go start this business because I ended up raising venture capital. Uh, the business was renowned. I, 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 I was accepted as really incredible accelerator for healthcare businesses. And I was like, this is my purpose. This is what I meant to do to, to do this business, to help families find private caregivers directly. So caregivers can make more money. So families can find cheaper caregivers. So families can choose their own caregivers. So I went and did this business for four years. And I had this meeting in my life from 2012 to 2000. 18, uh, no, 2012 to 2019, I'd done this business. And all the while, you know, I had ups and downs and things were going well. And sometimes they wouldn't go well. And, but I had meaning in my life and I was inspired and I had this strength and I still had resentment toward my brother, tremendous resentment, tremendous. I didn't talk to him for months on end. And I had resentment toward all my family, toward my uncle, toward my aunt. I started to build resentment toward everybody. And then Trump gets elected, right, in 2016. And then now I have resentment toward all the white people, you know, all the people Mm -hmm. that got him elected, white people, you know. And I started to really look at myself as a victim. Like, I I started to see it, you know. You start seeing, like, all these disparities, like how they treated Obama versus how they treated Trump versus what Trump was doing versus what Obama tried to do. And I just was overwhelmed by it. I was possessed by it. And I had a friend, I was seeing a counselor almost every week at that time. And the counselor told me, she said, you're like a big fist that's saying, fuck you to the world. And I said, you're exactly right. That's exactly what I am. I'm clenched and I'm full of anger. And people didn't know it. If they knew me, people at the time who knew me probably didn't know I was going through this because they would always say, Darren's you know, very funny guy, very sweet, doing all these things. No one would guess that I was going through what I was going through. But every week I was going to a therapist. I had suicidal ideation, suicidal tendencies. I was looking up ways to take my life and I was suffering. I couldn't sleep. I was full of anger and sadness and depression, and anxiety. I had a voice in my head that was screaming at me 24 seven. I, you know, I just couldn't sleep. I was tired all day. I was sad. And, um, but I hit it. And that's what people who have this thing do. They hide it. So I, um, I, uh, um, seeing this counselor and 2019 comes, I'm, I end up working with my brother again because my business, you know, it's doing okay, but I'm like, no, I want to go back to accounting. I always loved accounting. 
I always love, you know, working with people to help them find which accounting service, services would be best for them. So I go back working with my brother. It's very confusing. I have anger and resentment toward my brother, but I'm setting boundaries to try not to trigger myself with him. And I'm doing really well again. And then my dad, his wife, who we knew was developing stage four dementia and Alzheimer's, she finally attacks him and he puts her in a hospital. And he realizes it's just he'd been hiding it and running from it all this time for four years that she's developing this thing, this, this, this uh, dementia and, and Alzheimer's. He finally admits it. And I remember calling my brother and crying because I said, I'm going to lose my father. I'm going to lose him. I know dad, it's not going to be, he won't be able to endure this. So my dad is devastated. His wife has dementia and Alzheimer's and that's his soulmate. Well, my God, I've never seen two people love each other and support each other like those two people loved and support each other without it mm-hmm. out soulmates. And he, um, my dad immediately puts her in a retirement home. And, and I tell dad, I said, dad, I can get you a caregiver. Let me do this so you can stay at home with Diane and you can, you can take care of each other. This is the best way to do it. It'll be cheaper than what you're doing. It'll be better. And my dad no, said, no, no. I'm going to put her in a retirement home. And I know what happened now. Now I understand it. I have perspective. He was so scared of what was happening that he had to take control of the situation. It was an uncontrollable situation and he had to take whatever control he could take. So at the time, he, the Diane's stepson, Jeff, he gets a power of attorney saying that Diane is going to be buried in a certain funeral plot because Jeff believes that Diane wants to be buried, have a Christian burial in this funeral plot. And my dad is incest. He is, he, he's possessed. He goes, who does this, this person think he is? This guy, Jeff, that's my wife. We're soulmates. She's going to be cremated with me. She's going to be with me for eternity. Who does he think he is intervening with our lives? Because Jeff, he got a power of attorney illegally. Like she has Alzheimer's. You can't get a power of attorney for someone who has a thing like Alzheimer's. Mm. So what he did was illegal. And he went behind my dad's back. He snuck into the funeral home when my dad was not there. And he got her to sign this power of attorney. And my dad was devastated. And he was incest. So my dad is calling me every day about Jeff. And I say, Dad, I agree with you a thousand percent. Jeff is completely in the wrong. Let me see what I can do. I find out that Jeff does not have the power to do this. Legally, it's going to be overturned. And I tell Dad, don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Don't let this bother you. You keep living your life with Diane. But Dad, by now, is possessed. He's possessed. And he ends up taking Diane out of the funeral home. So Diane has type one diabetes, very intense. And my dad is not a good caregiver. And we're all worried for Diane at this point because she's take, he takes her out of the funeral home. He literally kidnaps her out of the funeral home that he put her in, but he has the right to do that. But he sneaks in, he, like he, he says, I'm gonna take her to lunch and he never brings her back. And we're all worried at this point. We're like, oh my gosh, Jeff, you know, Diane's gonna die. She's gonna die because my dad is not a good caregiver. And he, um, he doesn't know how to take care of her. Mm-hmm. So at this point, Jeff is incest because he's like, he believes that he's, you know, doing this thing to take care of his mom, to have her have this Christian funeral. Uh, my dad, of course, is incest at Jeff because he did this thing. He stuck behind my dad's back and everybody's trying to take control of Diane. He's like, no, she's my wife and she's his soulmate. I tell you this with a thousand percent certainty. And my dad's like, There's no, you're not going to do this to me and Diane. And my dad takes her out of the funeral home. And we're all scared because we don't think dad can take care of Diane. And he won't allow Jeff to see his mom anymore. So now I get upset at my dad because I said, dad, I lost my mom. You can't do this to Jeff. It's going to devastate him if you don't allow him to see his mom. So I get upset at my dad. 
And I stopped talking to my dad and I'm so upset at him because I know that if I talk to him, I'm going to argue with him. And I know my dad is in pain and I don't want to make his situation worse. So I know that I have to remove myself from his situation. I tell dad, I, I believe you and I support you, but you cannot let Jeff not see his mom. So then all the resentment from the divorce, you know, remember how I used to balance between my dad and my mom in the divorce, all that resentment from that divorce comes back up. It possesses me again, comes right back up. And I start getting upset at my dad. I start saying, this is what you did to Ma. You were relentless. You were, you know, you were heartless. And this is what you did to Ma. And now you're doing it to Jeff. You're doing it to another person. And I can't support this. And I started hating my dad. And, but I didn't tell him this so much. I, I really tried to separate myself from him because I knew I did not want him to give him this anger that I had because he was already in pain. So... By now, my suicidal tendencies is at full blast. My depression, anxiety is a 12 out of 10. Every day I'm hearing it. I'm working with these clients. I can't get through the day. I start arguing with BJ again. I'm scared to lose this work that I'm doing with BJ again because I love it. I argue with people at work. Um, I'm just in so much fear. Everybody's in fear. We're all possessed. My dad is possessed. Jeff is possessed. I am possessed. And... You know, dad, at the meantime, does this beautiful thing. He starts traveling the country with Diane and taking her to see all these places. They have one final adventure because they always had adventures. And dad starts his Facebook group and inspires hundreds, if not thousands of people, this journey that they're on. But I can't enjoy it because I'm, you know, I'm resenting my dad. So then Diane passes and I'm in Colombia when she passed. I'm traveling. And in Colombia, and by the way, traveling is like a psychedelic experience. In Colombia... I gain this joy again of life and something in me transforms and I start to feel happy again. But in Colombia, I find out dad's wife, Diane has passed. And, you know, I see this email thread where Jeff said, does she really pass? Because, you know, you never tell me the truth. And dad posted a picture of Diane being carried out of the house on a stretcher. And mm. I'm just devastated. I'm like, how can you do that to him? You didn't let him see his mom before she passed it. Now you post this picture. And I'm so upset at my dad again. I don't call my dad, even though his wife has passed, even though Diane has passed, who was my stepmom, a beautiful woman, a beautiful mother. I don't call her. And I don't call him to, you know, to talk with him. So then I get back home. I'm, I'm saying to myself, I got to call dad, but I just don't know how to talk to him. So then he goes to Costa Rica. I end up calling him but he's not home because he's in Costa Rica. And I didn't know this. So then he gets back from Costa Rica and he says, Darren, did you tell Jeff that I was growing cannabis? I was growing weed. And here's the thing about my dad. He, he used to grow cannabis. He lived in South Carolina and he would grow cannabis, but he only grew it for himself and it saved his life. Like he used to take all these medicines and they didn't help him. So he took the cannabis and it helped him with his anxiety and his depression and it saved his life. And he was so relaxed and he loved growing his plants. Those were his two loves, Diane and those plants. So Jeff, what had happened was when my dad was away at Costa Rica, Jeff had reported him to the police. He says he didn't, but we all know he did. And he had reported him to the police. But I didn't realize that at the time. But I told my dad, well, someone had reported him to the police. But it makes sense that it would be Jeff. So my, uh, so my dad, uh, uh, he, uh, sorry, he, he ends up saying, Darren, did you report me? I said, no. You know, my dad is devastated because the police came and they said, we need to talk to you. And they took down all his plants. My dad is devastated. And I said, no, dad, I would never do that. So then that's the last time I talked to my dad. Because the next day, my dad takes his life. And 
I remember being in the car. I get a text, I get a phone, like text message from Jeff first says something's wrong with your dad. Then I get a call from BJ five minutes later and says, he says, Darren, dad took his life. And I remember just being in shock. Yeah. I remember reliving that whole day. And I remember shock is this weird thing that happens to you. It's like a, a cloud, a, like a blanket that has no feeling, but it just covers you and it has no feeling. And I just remember being in shock, like reliving the day and not, I remember telling BJ, you know, these things about that it, it wasn't a surprise, you know, that dad did this. And I remember now I look back at what I said about that and I'm devastated that I said that. But at the time I was so in shock and it's, you know, we saw how much pain was my dad was in mm. <sighs> and it all awful. came crashing down to me. It's awful. And I love my father so tremendously. I cannot tell you how much I love my father. My mother, my father, and my brother are the three most important people in my life. And oh God, I love my father. Yeah. And, and I remember that day, I remember just knowing, like BJ said, we got to go to dad, dad's house to just take care of the house. So I remember that day, the next day, I, th I thought I'm in trouble. I need to do something or I'm going to take my life. This is it. This is the real thing. I'm going to take my life. And somehow I found this book called How to Change Your Mind by Michael Pollan. It was a book about how they're using psychedelics in mental health therapy with PTSD and depression and anxiety. And for some reason, I found that book. And on the way to visit my dad, and I know why I found that book, but I'll, I'll, perhaps I'll have time to mention it later. But on the way to visit, my, to go to my dad's house to take care of the stuff, I bought the book on tape from an Audible, from Audible. My brother had bought me Audible a year before. Who knows why he bought me Audible? He never bought me Audible before, but hmm. Audible had one more month left on it. And that last month, I bought that book, How to Change Your Mind. And on the way to visit my dad, I listened to that book and I listened about how they were using mushrooms and LSD and the history of them. And I was like, oh my God, this is what I need to do. This would have helped dad. This can help other people. And while I was, and it brought me, I don't know how to explain it, but all the anxiety and depression and sadness and shame and guilt, it kind of alleviated them. And it said, it's going to be okay. So I end up reading that book. I end up coming back home and trying to figure out, well, how do I do this? How do I do this? And I find some friends that tell me they know another friend that can get me mushrooms. Cause like, how do you even buy mushrooms? I don't even know how to do that. So I right. find a person to give me mushrooms. He's really smart about how to do all this. And he says, these are what you want to take. So he sells me seven grams of penis envy. If you know anything about penis envy, it's one of the strongest mushrooms. So then I start sitting with them. I don't know how to take them. I take a bite of them like every couple of days. Nothing happens. I'm like, this is not working. So like a little tiny bite. So then I'm, I'm listening online. I find Alan Watts. I find Terrence McKenna. I find these studies. And Terrence McKenna is speaking directly to me. He's like a brother. I love Terrence McKenna like he's my brother. And he's speaking directly to me. And he tells me how to take the mushrooms, right? He talks about it online. Five grams in silent darkness. So I end up, one day I say, I'm ready to take them. I get a sleep mask. I download the John Hawkins psilocybin study music playlist. I clean my house. I build an altar. My altar is all these personal items, photographs of my childhood, my family. And I take seven grams. I take five grams at first, <laughs> five grams of penis envy. And I remember I'm sitting there in the music and I'm just feeling really grounded. The mushrooms start to feel really sensual in your body. And I'm sitting there with the music. And then I, um, I what's my call? Then I start to feel them take, take charge, and I say to myself, okay, I'm going to, um, 
uh, I'm going to take, I'm going to take the, uh, I'm going to take the other two grams because I really want these to work. So then I take the seven grams with peanut butter and honey. And this is when it's already starting to work. So then I lie back down and then the, everything changes. The music starts to have form. I start to feel it in my body and it starts to be sticky. And I, and I'm like, I start having all these thoughts and then I start to think about my, my, um, I start to understand things. I start to have realizations and I start to realize like, oh, wow, I understand every Beatles song and I understand everything every philosopher ever said. And I start to have all these really deep understandings about the world and why things happen. And, you know, then I'm, I start to think about my mom and dad and I just start to cry tremendously like so incredibly tremendously with my entire body. And then I take off the mask and I look at the pictures and I'm just crying. And this crying I'm doing, I don't know how to explain it, but it was my entire body and soul. And I cried for an hour, this tremendous crying that you've never seen with my entire body screaming and crying. And then I stopped crying after an hour or two, after an hour, hour and a half. And then I start just thinking of things. And I call my friends, my friend Tisha, my friend Jeff and Tracy, and I start telling them about my journey. And I'm saying, yeah, I took the mushrooms. I feel great. It's so beautiful. And we start laughing. And I tell them, ask me questions, ask me questions. And I'm just answering questions for them. And we're laughing so hard and my abs are showing. And I'm laughing so incredibly hard. And finally I tell them, hey, I gotta go, I gotta go. And I didn't understand how mushrooms work. I understand now, but you know, that was just the first peak. So then the second peak yeah. hit. And in the second peak, I start to see the entire universe and I start to understand everything. I see all of time laid before me like a, like a map, like a topographic map. And, and it starts to become really overwhelming. So then I see myself looking at the universe. Like I'm looking at the universe. I'm standing on a planet, I think. So then I see myself watching myself looking at the universe. And then the, myself. So somehow I see myself looking at the universe. Like I see myself, my physical body. Then the myself that I'm looking at, it literally melts and disintegrates. And I remember thinking to myself, well, what was that? What, what, who is looking at me? Who is looking at the universe now? Who is this thing looking at the universe now? Because I just melted away. And that was ego death. Mm. That, that was ego death. I saw my ego die. And I suddenly was no longer in my ego. I was in my true self, my soul. And, but I didn't know it at the time. I didn't know what was going on. And that's when the, the question started in the affinity, like, well, who is this looking at myself and who am I and why am I and what am I? And I just started going into those loops. Like, why am I, who am I, what am I? And I just started going into infinite loops and mm. that started becoming incredibly overwhelming because it was like falling out of a plane and just spinning. And I didn't know what to do. And I remember thinking to myself, oh my God, I've really screwed up my life. Like now I'm going to go insane. Like I'm going to be like this forever. Like I just, it was overwhelming and I just, my whole body was revolting. And I remember climbing in bed and thinking to myself, this is why people are scared of going mad when they take mushrooms. This is what happens. And I've made this huge mistake. And you know, you think about all those stories people tell about mushrooms and psychedelics and how you go mad. And I just... I ended up thinking like, I remember Dr. Weil in the book, How to Change Your Mind, Andrew Weil was talking about how he used to be a doctor and people would come into the hospital with bad trips and he would tell them, oh, you're, you're having a bad trip. Let me go to the next room. There's someone there having a real problem. 
And he said <laughs> that would always cure them because he would say that they would realize, oh, it's going to be okay. So I remember just kept thinking of that. I said, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. And finally, after seven or eight hours, I finally fell asleep. And I woke up the next day and I was like, what the heck was that? <laughs> yeah. So then that began and, my And this was your first trying, mushroom yeah. experience? This is my first experience with almost anything. Like wow. I'd smoked marijuana, but very small. This yeah. is probably my first experience with anything. So definitely my first experience with a psychedelic. Yeah, wow. Uh, and I remember waking up the next day and I was like, what just happened? And for some reason, I think it was through the book, How to Change Your Mind, I started to research something called integration. So I said, I have to find people to help me integrate this. So I started talking to friends and some friends had taken mushrooms before and they were giving me advice about what happened and what to do about it. Um, but I was just integrating it myself little by little. I really didn't know how to integrate this. And I ended up telling my friend, Tisha, Tisha, I said, Tisha, I think I'm going to go to Peru and take ayahuasca. I think that's the next step for me. And she said, Darren, I think there's a church here in Orlando that takes it. So I discovered that there was this place called Soul Quest, and it's one of the largest, if not the largest, ayahuasca church in the country. And it's in Orlando, 20 minutes from me. And I'm like, what are the chances yeah, wow. that there's an ayahuasca church right down the street from my house? So I call up one of the founders, Verena, and I say, Verena, I'd love to come down and check out your church. And she said, yeah, if you want to volunteer, go come down. I was like, wow, okay, I'll volunteer. So I ended up going down there and volunteering a weekend, one of the weekends when people were taking ayahuasca. And it was beautiful. I saw these people crying and healing, and I sat in an integration, and Verena did the integration. She asked me to tell my story, and I told my story to everybody, and it, it felt so healing. And, and I saw everybody healing, and I was just like, this is beautiful, because I wanted to see, are they a cult? What are they doing here? And I, and I saw, no, they're not. There's these beautiful people trying to help other people. And I said, you know what, this is what I'm going to do. So I ended up integrating my experience for the next four months. I wasn't ready to take ayahuasca yet, but I integrated my experience um, by, by volunteering at Soul Quest. So I volunteered for ceremony. I started working in the kitchen because I could cook. And I would just serve people food, you know, and it was so beautiful. And I integrated my experience. And then four months later, I said, you know what, I'm ready to take ayahuasca. So on October 4th, because I write down all my experiences, on October 4th, I went to take ayahuasca. So I remember showing up. I was late to take it because I was coming from work. And I show up late and everybody's already had drank the medicine by then. And I sit down, I drink two, two cups. And I'm sitting there, you know, for like 45 minutes. I'm like, oh, wow, it's not working. And my friend Carlos, I tell him, hey, I don't think it's working. He tells me, Darren, ayahuasca, mother ayahuasca always tests our patients. You'll be okay. So I'm sitting there waiting and waiting. And then, then it comes, <laughs> then it comes. Like I start to hear the music change the texture. It's always the music and uh, it's changing texture. And I start to feel it, you know, I start to feel like this thing inside my body, scanning my body. I can feel it going from my feet to my hands and I feel it inside my body. And then I feel my stomach, it erupts. Like my, my stomach like explodes. Like it feels like it's full of this pressure. And I grab my bucket and I vomit so incredibly hard. It's a white bucket and the black vomit is blacker. It looked like pure oil. It was blacker than anything I'd ever seen. And the ayahuasca is brown and I had not had anything to eat that day. So I think to myself, I was like, how did this look like so black? And my friend who's a nurse, she said, Darren, sometimes it could have been old blood because when old blood is in your body, it's very black. And I was like, you know, I was like, maybe it was old blood, you know, but whatever it was, as soon as I vomited, I felt something get released inside of me. 
And I just went back into my journey. I just lied down in my journey. So then I started thinking of my mom and dad. And I thought of my mom and I just was crying so hard about my mom, just like the mushrooms, just crying and crying. And I thought of my mom and my mom, I felt her in my knees and I have really strong legs. And my mom had really strong legs and my mom loved to dance and I love to play soccer and I like to dance. And I thought, you know, that makes sense that my mom would be in my knees. And I held my knees up to my heart, my chest, and I just hugged my knees thinking of my mom. So then I started thinking of my dad and he was in my chest and shoulders and I just hugged him and my brother and my uncle, they were in my chest and shoulders and I just hugged them. And I just started getting messages from the ayahuasca. I started to get the message, forgive yourself, forgive others, allow yourself to feel. And I just allowed myself to feel every feeling I was feeling, the sadness, the sadness, you know, the profound sadness and the grief of losing them. And I just allowed myself to feel them. And I started to time travel and started to go through the universe. And when that happened, Dr. Scott, one of the founders there at SoulQuest, he told me, Darren, when things get overwhelming, touch the earth and remember to breathe. That will help you. And that's what I did. And just like the mushrooms, when things started getting overwhelming, I started spinning out of control. This time I touched the earth and I remembered to breathe. And that helped me. Like I started to ground myself. I started to feel okay. And I knew, and I was able to sit in the journey. And this time it didn't take me into the infinite. It was okay. I was able to sit with it. So I started to tell myself, everything is okay. Everything is going to be okay. Breathing is your anchor. Remember to breathe. So then I just started seeing all these people in my mind, you know, my mother, my father, my family, my friends, like I saw Obama, I saw Trump. And I just started telling myself, be compassionate to others. Others are suffering. Be compassionate to others. And I don't know why, but it just started saying ego does not matter. It's also trivial. Everything is so trivial, but it's also profound. It it's profound, but at the same time, it's trivial. You have to laugh about it. And, you know, I started telling myself, stop applying meaning to everything. Meaning gives things structure, but you don't have to keep applying it to everything. It's okay to not understand things. And I just started getting these, all these beautiful insights. Allow yourself space. Be compassionate with yourself. Too much meaning can be overwhelming. And that ended up being my journey for the first night, just all these things, all these insights. So then I woke up the next day and I remember like I could not walk. Literally my whole body was leaning over to the side and I couldn't walk. And I got out of bed and they were drinking ayahuasca that afternoon. And I said, there's no way I'm drinking ayahuasca this afternoon. Hmm. Like I cannot walk. Like I feel like I can't I, imagine I doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I could not walk. So then I just spent the entire day just taking care of myself, eating, sleeping, taking a shower, cooking. Like I just had to get myself back in order. Like I was, my body was a wreck. And then that night I took ayahuasca again. We take it again the second night. And I remember I drank it and I said, and I remember right before I drank it, I said, Darren, don't do this. This is a huge mistake. You're going to die. If what happened to you happens again tonight, you're going to die. And I said, I, I can't take it. I shouldn't take it. And then I said to myself, Darren, that's just your ego. That's what your ego does. It's scared. It's scared of dying. You'll be okay. You've done this before. You've watched hundreds of people do this. You're going to be okay. And I drank the ayahuasca. And immediately after drinking, I said, I got to throw up. I made a mistake. And I told myself, Darren, don't worry about it. You're going to be okay. So I just lied down. And then the music started gaining structure. It started getting sticky. And I knew it was coming. I just laid back and waited for it to happen. I just breathed. And all of a sudden, I started feeling things. I saw the universe. I saw all of time. I saw how we get caught up in things. I saw BJ kicking me out of the business, my anger towards Jeff. And I started realizing it's all so trivial. This is all a joke. 
we make such a big deal about it, but it's all part of the plan. If we understood the entire process, we would realize these things are so tiny and trivial, but we have to honor them as well because they're sacred to us. But at the same time, in reality, they're trivial. And I started journeying and I was thinking about my mom and dad and I started crying. I started crying and I started telling my dad, I was like, you were so good. You were such a good man. I love you so much. And you were both so good. And then I started thinking of my brother, I started thinking of my mom, how good she was and how wise both of them were and how they knew things. And I just didn't realize the things they knew at the time, but they were so wise. I started thinking of my brother and how we built this business together. And we had given people this identity and given them joy. And I just cried. I said, we built that together, BJ, you and I built that together. And I was no longer thinking of him kicking me out of this. I was thinking of how much how much love we had put into that business together and how we had done something so beautiful together that still exists. Um, so I was just thinking of my dad. And I started thinking of all my friends and family and I was just crying for how much pain that we're in. I was crying for my, my sister-in-law, Carrie, who had lost her, her sister to cancer as well. And I cried for her pain and for her mom's pain, for her dad's pain. I just started crying for all the pain people feel in the world. And I started to realize I could start to direct my journey. Like if I wanted to cry for Carrie, I could. And if I wanted to think about my father, I could. And I could direct the journey to where I wanted to go. So then I went to my dad and I started to think about his father. And I started to go. I went back in time with my dad to his father. And I said, Dad, Grandpa Reuben, he was a good man because his dad had died young. Like my dad was 20 when his dad had passed. And my dad used to always say he loved his father. But he always used to say, you know, I could never be a postman like my father. Like I love adventure. And my dad was just so happy just doing his little thing, like playing cards on Friday and being a postman. And we went back in time and we looked at my grandfather and we said, you know, I said, Dad, he was a good man. He was a good father, just like you. He just loved this simple life, you know, he loved it. And you were meant for adventure and he was meant for the simple life and he loved it. There's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, I started to realize that these lessons in life, they only make sense in the context of this other experience, this other consciousness. We only understand them then because we, when we try to understand them through our ego, we can't, our ego is the problem, you know? And I started to realize that music is this beautiful tool, this beautiful creation that grounds us. Um, I started to understand how sacred this other realm was, this other part of consciousness. And, um, you know, and then I just started to experience all these beautiful things. I started to ask myself questions. Why is love the most powerful force in the universe? What happens when we die? And I got answers to each of these things. So then I'm nearing the end of the journey. I'm starting to get that second plateau and I feel it coming down and I go outside and sit next to the fire. By now I'm talking to some of the facilitators. I feel great. And I tell one of the facilitators, Anthony, I say, Anthony, can you give me some, some rape? Cause I'd always heard rape was interesting when you're in a psychedelic experience. So Anthony comes over and he gives me rape and he gives me rape in my right nostril. I always do rape in my left nostril first, which is considered the feminine, but he does it in the right. Immediately. I say, Anthony, that's weird you're giving it to me in my right. He said, yeah, I'm left-handed, so I do it the opposite way, but it doesn't really matter which way you give it. It just matters that you have an intent when you take it. So I take the rape. It literally feels like someone took a bat and slammed me on the side of my head. I, I kid you not, wham. I instantly, I'm sitting cross-legged. I instantly slam down on the earth. My face hits the ground. <sighs> and I get smashed right back into another journey immediately. 
And, and I'm sitting there with this experience, trying to, to feel this experience, which is so overwhelming and so powerful and so physical at this point. And Anthony tells me, he says, Darren, do you want me to give you the other side? I'm like, no, Anthony, I'm not ready. I can't take the other side. So I'm sitting there for about 30, 45 minutes, just sitting there in this journey of the rape with the ayahuasca. And I don't know how to describe it, but I'm like fly, being hurled through the universe, basically. And I finally, it starts to come down and I tell someone, I say, Let, can you take me to the bathroom? I want to look at myself in the mirror. Because I always heard that looking at yourself in the mirror in a psychedelic experience is, is pretty powerful. So I go to the bathroom, I look at myself in the, in the mirror and I see myself. And I just see myself as Darren. Not as me looking at me, but as Darren, my soul looking at Darren. And I just start to cry. And I, real, I start to tell myself, Darren, you're okay. You're a good person. You did the best you could. You loved your parents. You were just caught in so much fear and anger and resentment, but you did the best you could. You always loved your parents and you're not a bad person. And I realized how much I'd hurt myself, how much I'd hated myself, how much I told myself that I'm not a good person. I don't deserve love for myself or anyone else. And I'm a bad person. I deserve to suffer. I realized that that was not true. I did not deserve to suffer. I was a good person. And I cried and I cried just like I cried for everyone else. I finally was crying for myself. And I, I cried and I forgave myself. And I saw Darren outside of myself. And I said, Darren, you're a good person. And it was my soul crying. I realized now my soul, I had had an ego death, another ego death, but this one was different. This was me crying for Darren who had hurt himself worse than anyone had hurt Darren. No one had hurt Darren as hard as I had hurt Darren. And I cried. I said, you're a good person. You, you're a good person. You did your best. You love those people and you did your best and you're a good person and you deserve love as well. And that was it. That was my, my ayahuasca journey. And wow, that was huge. it, you know? Yeah. 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 Stuart. It was so, you know, it's funny. I thought that was the end of my journey. I thought I'd finally done it. I thought I'd finally healed myself. And at this point, I said, I'm going to become an integration coach. I want to help others. I studied at being true to you. I became an integration coach at Soul Quest. They started allowing me to do integration. And I was doing great. I, was, I really excelled at this work. I knew how to feel others' pain. I knew how to articulate their pain. I knew how to help them move forward in the right way to transform whatever trauma they had. And I was really good at it. Really good at it. And I'm yeah. going forward with my life. Yeah. And everything's going the way it should be going, but I still, my ego comes back, but I'm aware of it. I'm aware of it. Like I, I still get upset at others at a really small level and I get judgmental and I get sad and shame, but I'm aware of the ego and I'm like, it's all right. It's all right. If I'm aware of it and I continue to work with mushrooms, like every four to six months, I'll take a high dose of mushrooms or NDMA and I, I feel myself healing and sitting in these journeys and I can sit in the journey perfectly. I can meditate Nothing will take me out of the journey. I don't get overwhelmed by it. And I'm sitting in these journeys and everything's going well. And then I have the interview with you. And in that interview, I can't remember what day we did it. It's probably October or something like that. In the interview, I, um, we talk about my transformational journey. Everything mm -hmm. I told you now we talk about. And we talk about my parents. And in the process, I realized I hadn't spoken about my parents the way I'm talking to you about them since they had passed. And all this stuff comes up for me, all this shame and guilt, it comes up inside of me. It had been hiding. And I remember like an hour or two after our interview, I call you and I tell you, Stuart, I feel so bad, but can you not publish our interview? 
because I said things that are going to hurt others and are going to hurt myself. And Stuart, you were so kind. You said, Darren, don't worry about it. We'll do it again when you're ready. Don't, or if you're not ready, we don't worry about it. And I remember you had said our interview was so great. That was one of the yeah, best interviews great. we had done for this. Yeah. And I remember feeling so bad about it. And I was like, but I can't, I cannot let you publish that because I can't publish that because I had said things that are going to hurt others and going to hurt myself. Yeah. And, and you didn't do it. And I really, I appreciate it so much. And, you know, I realize now everything happens for a reason. That mm. interview happened for a reason. It happened to bring this stuff up inside of me that I thought I had healed. So then I, um, then I go to the soul quest, a soul quest party. It was for Chris, one of the founders, his birthday. And a friend of mine, I, I meet her there and she had taken ayahuasca. She was in my integration group. And she tells me how she had recently taken iboga and how that was the thing that had healed her. And I was like, wow, because I remember in my integration with her, she was not able to heal through ayahuasca. She still had her issues. So she tells me how iboga had healed her. So I was like, wow, iboga sounds interesting. I'd heard about it a few times before. So then, and she told me how the process works. And I felt like, wow, that's a really integrative process. It's not like ayahuasca where you have the experience and then you integrate. Like iboga, you're integrating during the process. So then I, um, and iboga is an African plant medicine. They call it the master teacher. It is literally the master teacher, like master above all the teachers, I feel like the master. Wow. Plant. So then I, um, then for Soul Quest, they do these interviews of practitioners and different things for the sun Sunday service. And they interviewed a Iboga practitioner. So I said, can I do this interview? And Dr. Scott said, yeah, you can do it. So I interviewed the guy and I interviewed him everything about Iboga. And I researched it and I was like really amazed. I was like, this is an interesting process. Like it's a process where you li relive parts of your life and you're able to affect them. Um, so, so I end up wanting to do Iboga with him and we have an integration call and it doesn't go well. And I realized, oh, he's not the right one for me. So then somehow I found this place called Awaken Your Soul in Costa Rica. And I have a call with one of the founders and I say, you know, I tell him my experience. I say, I don't know if I want to take it with you guys. It's kind of expensive and I got to go to Costa Rica. He said, Darren, you do whatever you need to do, but I will tell you that Iboga is meant to be taken in the jungle. There's something about Iboga in the jungle that has a really strong connection. And that resonates with me. And I say, you know what? I'm going to take it. I wait till the last minute to sign up for the group. He tells me, Darren, we literally have one more spot. If you're interested, let me know. And I say, yeah, let's do it. And I pay my deposit and I cancel a trip I had to Europe for, because I always travel on the Christmas holidays and I cancel a trip. I say, I'm going to go to Costa Rica. So I go to Costa Rica and immediately, and this is the take Iboga. Iboga is an African plant medicine, African plant mm -hmm. teacher. Immediately at arriving in Costa Rica, my ego starts acting up. And I don't realize, it. oh, there was something else that happened before that. One other thing that happened before that, before I take any boga was I visited my aunt and for Thanksgiving. And when I visited my aunt, she had told me some things that had happened with my father, how he was really felt abandoned and he was crying the last days of his life because he felt that we had abandoned him, that I had abandoned him. And it just broke me. That broke oh, me and all oh. the shame and guilt. Yeah. All the shame and the guilt that I'd had before I'd taken mushrooms had come back. It had all come back. And that's when I decided to take Iboga. And that's when all these things started coming in my life. So I go to Costa Rica. I start to feel like my ego come back. I start judging Anthony and, and awaken your soul. Like, I'm like, who do these white people think they are? 
serving a, a plant medicine from Africa. I'm like, you know, Anthony is giving his speech about how it works. And I'm like, who does this guy think he is? He doesn't know anything about integration. I'm judging the food. I'm judging my accommodations. And when they show me my, my bed for Iboga, I judge the bed. I'm like, I should be, I should move my bed. I don't want to sit there. I should wear a different sleep mask, all this stuff. I'm just judging it and judging it. So then comes time to take Iboga and Anthony, you know, he gives his talk about how Iboga works and, and the origins of Iboga. And we take it and I tell him, he gives me a huge scoop of Iboga. And let me tell you something about Iboga. Iboga takes, makes ayahuasca taste like hot chocolate. Like Iboga, you think Ugh. ayahuasca tastes bad? Iboga is the most horrible thing you'll ever taste in your life. It is incredibly bitter. It has taste that I've never tasted before. It is dry. It, it like, it sucks all the moisture out of your mouth and taste buds and replaces it with this incredibly bitter, acrid, I don't know how to describe it. And you can't swallow it. Like if you try to swallow it, it's very dry. So it's not meant, it, you can't swallow it. So you have to drink water and force it down your throat. Ugh. So I take Iboga and it's incredibly horrible. And I'm sitting there in the journey. So I put the sleep mask on. And if you ever heard Dweedy music, Dweedy music is incredible incredibly antagonistic and percussive and they play it for 12 hours and it's you play it sometime play weedy music on youtube you'll hear what i'm talking about you've never heard any music like this it is incredibly aggressive and antagonistic it's not pleasant at all so play yeah, what, is, what is it called and the weedy b-w-i-t-i that's the tribe that where okay. Boga came okay. from that's the people so you're playing the music and the way Awaken Your Soul set up is they have this really beautiful ceremony spot, this little temple with got beautiful acoustics where you take the music. So the music, you feel like it's in your ear. You feel like they're like playing right next to you. So the music comes, it's playing. And I start to, first thing I see is I start to see these green holographic faces in front of me. And this happens like 20 minutes, 30 minutes after taking Iboga. So I start to see these green holographic faces and they're very primitive looking, but I recognize them and they're holograms and they're looking at me. And I recognize them. They don't talk. They just look at me. And it's like 10 phases all superimposed on each other. And I can recognize them. They look like they're from Greek times, but I don't know who they are. Um, the next day, they told me those are either your ancestors or those are past lives. And believe me, I believe that's what they were. Um, so because they look like me, but not really like me. So then I'm in I'm sitting there seeing these faces and they dissipate and I'm just kind of sitting there in the journey sitting there and then I start to see it it starts to come I start to see memories memories of my uh memories of my family and childhood and I immediately start to cry I immediately start to cry but it's not the crying that happened with ayahuasca and mushrooms it's no longer that cathartic crying it's a cry of pain and anguish I don't know if you recognize that cry because what we probably do is this is crying of like just pain and anguish. It's not a cathartic cry. It's not a release. It's pain, literal pain. And I'm crying because I just see these people I love um, and they're in pain. And the thing about Iboga, what Iboga does is it takes whatever your worst fear is and it amplifies it. That's what Iboga does. It makes you face your worst fear. It's not like ayahuasca or mushrooms at all, where there's some transcendence. There is transcendence, but it's different. It's not like you're, you're, you're moved, you're brought to the, to the heavens. No, with Iboga, you're in your body. You're in your experience. You're fully conscious, fully conscious. So I started to see my family 
And I just started to cry and scream because I started to see my worst fear is seeing people I love in pain. And what I saw was I was the one that caused their pain. And that you can imagine, like you think you're worth, you think you know your worst fear and you realize your worst fear is worse. And that was my worst fear, seeing people I love in pain and I had caused the pain they were in. And I saw my dad alone at his house crying because no one was helping him with, with Diane. And I saw my, my mom and she was at home crying because I had, she had, she was scared to be alone, you know, that my, she was divorcing my dad and scared to raise two boys on her own. And I saw my brother in his office after I'd yelled at him and he was crying because he was shaking because like, I got to do this business. And I have a child coming and, and I can't work with Darren because he's always so tough on me. And I was just screaming and crying. And that was my journey. And the first night, and so I tried to meditate. So I'm screaming and crying and I try to meditate, right? Because I learned this was a tool. This was a tool that I could use when things got overwhelming. I should meditate and observe the journey. So I started. Hey, hey Darren, when you I walk away, we can't, when you walk away, we can't hear you as well. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I started to meditate. And I started to, cause I realized I learned through all my journeys that meditation was a tool to mm. sit within this journey and to observe the journey when it gets overwhelming. So I started to meditate because this pain was too overwhelming and I started to meditate and I started to observe and you know what happened? Nothing, what? nothing, nothing, nothing happened. Nothing. I still was in all the pain. I could not step away from it. I could not mm. observe the experience. I was in all the pain. And I was just screaming and crying. And it went like that for 11 hours. And I'm surprised I did not have wow. a heart attack. Like I, I was screaming and crying the entire time. And every now and then I would take my mask off because I'd have to breathe because it was too much. It was too overwhelming. Because when you take your mask off and open your eyes, you the visions go away. And then you close your eyes and the visions come back. And I was just screaming and crying, screaming, crying for 11 hours. I just kept going back, kept going back. And I don't know why I kept doing that. I don't know why I kept going back to the pain, but that's what I kept doing. And so the next day I woke up and I thought to myself, holy shit, I have made a huge mistake because I thought I had healed all this. And instead with Iboga, I brought it back 10 times worse and nothing I could do could stop the pain and the anguish. And it wasn't cathartic. I wasn't able to heal. So I, I left the, the, the temple area and I saw one of the integration coaches, Raven, and I said, Raven, what happened to me? And I told her my story. And she said, Darren, in Hawaii, they have a practice. It's called Ho'oponopono. And it goes, it's a practice. And it goes, I love you. I'm so, so sorry. Please forgive me. Thank you. And what you do is you tell that to everyone you meet. Everyone you meet, you tell that to. And when she told me that story, it really felt good. It really resonated with me. I said, you know what? I'm going to do that. So for the rest of the day, I went and went through all my memories of all my family, my mother, brother, dad, family. And I just said, I love you, dad. I'm so, so sorry that I wasn't aware that I was so resentful, that I was so angry. I'm so, so sorry that I wasn't there for you. And I cried and I cried and a good cry, a cathartic cry. And I said, I love you, dad, please forgive me. And then I went to my mom and I told Ma, I was like, Mom, I'm so, so sorry that I was such an angry child and I just didn't know and I love you. And I told my brother, Vijay, I was so fearful and I love you. Please forgive me. And I cried for all of them. And I did that for about 12 hours straight all day. And the thing wow. is, after you take Iboga, you're awake for another 20 hours. So you're basically awake for 36 to 40 hours straight. Iboga is amazing. Um, and I cried and cried until I finally went to sleep that night. 
And I finally went to sleep like a day later. I went to sleep like 11 o'clock at night. I'd been up since eight o'clock the previous morning. And I finally went to sleep. And then the next day, so that day is all reflection. That's how Awaken Your Soul does it. You spend the whole day reflecting. You know, you don't, there's no integration. There's no anything. So then the next day we met and we had integration. We all talked. We spoke about our experience. And then we did a, we did a, a water, like a, a water ceremony in the stream. We went to a waterfall and it was beautiful. We just had this beautiful ceremony. And then the next day it comes time to take a boga again. By this day, I think it's Wednesday. Like I take a boga Saturday. Now we're taking it for the second time on Wednesday. So this time I'm ready. Like I know what to do and take the aboga. I end up taking two, two tablespoons this time. And the experience happens almost immediately. Like immediately I go into the experience and I start feel, seeing my mom and dad. And I start feeling the shame and guilt of everything that happened. I immediately start screaming and crying again, immediately screaming and crying. And I immediately say, I go into Ho'oponopono. I say, like, as soon as I see that image of my mother and father, like them as child, my dad walking me to school, my dad, when he used to take us to the KP hole, my mom as a child, when she'd bake us cakes or do parties for us or just be in the house and we'd be cooking with her and I'd be crying because of all those moments I wasted and was mean to them. I, I see those moments, I'm crying and screaming and I do Ho'oponopono. Ma, I'm so, so sorry that I was angry as a child. I loved you so much. I'm so, so sorry that I wasn't aware. Please forgive me. Dad, I'm so, so sorry that I was so angry at you. I love you. You're a good man. Please forgive me. And you know what happens? Nothing. 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 <laughs> Nothing. I don't feel any catharsis. I feel only pain. And I scream and cry. And I'm crying and screaming for hours. Hmm. And then I go to the bathroom and I... I go to look at myself in the mirror because I, I say, you know, I have to forgive myself and I can't. I'm sitting in the bathroom right in front of the mirror and I can't look up. I don't want to even look at myself. And and then I start looking through pictures. I brought pictures of me and my family and I just start screaming and crying at every picture. Every picture is filled with sadness because they're just memories of these people that I had hurt. And I'm just screaming and crying, screaming and crying. And then I close my eyes and I go back to the very worst memory in my childhood. I asked my brother about this memory. I said, BJ, do you remember what the worst memory we ever had was, the worst experience? And BJ knows, he tells me exactly. I go back to that memory. It was a time when we had went to visit my father and my mom had said, hey, make sure your dad pays the alimony. And I was arguing with my father. My dad said, you know what? You're going back home. And he was upset at us, arguing with us. He drove up on the front lawn of our house. We ran out of the car. My mom ran out of the house and was screaming at my dad. You need to pay the alimony. You need to pay the alimony. My dad is screaming at my mom. You don't tell these kids to get involved in our divorce. They don't have any right to be involved with this. You're, Darren has no right to yell at me. He's screaming at my mom. My brother runs up to my mom, grabs her leg, and is screaming and crying. I am yelling at both of them. Dad, you need to pay the alimony. Ma, stop screaming. All these people are yelling at each other, screaming at each other. And I look at them. And I'm screaming at this point. Like I did not think it could get worse. And there it goes getting worse, right? Mm -hmm. I'm screaming in so much pain and anguish. And I'm looking at these people and I see them possessed by fear. I see them all possessed by this incredibly traumatic experience. They're so possessed by fear. And I scream and I cry. And I'm crying so hard. And then as if the memory 
can, as if the fear cannot get any worse, right? You're like, that's it. How can it get worse than that? I see my mother become a child. She's standing there on the porch of our house and she becomes that little girl. And she's just this little Peruvian woman that's so scared that, that, you know, she realizes like, I have to raise these two boys on my own and I'm this Peruvian woman and I don't even speak English that well. How am I going to do it? And, you know, I see her as a child and she left Peru and she had had this really abusive childhood and she was so scared and so fearful and she was so consumed with fear. And then I see my dad and he's like, he just wants to be with his kids. Like he loves his kids. He didn't even want to get divorced and he's scared for himself. He's scared to be alone. And then I see him turn to a child and he's such a loving little boy. And his father died when he was 20. And I see him crying for his father. And it's just this little boy yelling at me and my mom. And he's so scared. He's just scared. And then I see myself and I'm just a little boy just crying and screaming. And then I see my brother and man, this is when I break. Like my brother, there's been a Gestalt therapist there at Awaken Your Soul. And he had done Gestalt therapy. And Gestalt therapy is this therapy where you diagnose a person based on how their body forms, because your body forms a certain way based on your trauma. And he told me that there's one way your body forms where your shoulders will hunch forward and your neck will hunch forward because it's literally trying to get love. And it's constricting a part of your breathing that needs love. It literally chokes that part so you don't feel it anymore. And that's how I was as a child. My father used to always say, Darren, you hunch forward so much. So I'm crying about that. But he said, there's another thing that happens too. There's a thing where a person stands straight up. And they do that because they're forming a body armor to say, I don't even need love. I'm going to stand straight up so I don't even get love. And I look at my brother. Mm. My brother's a child. And he transforms into an adult. And I see him stand straight up like that because I always used to say my brother had really great posture. Mm. And I see him standing straight up like that and I explode. Like mm. I explode because I, I realize BJ still has the trauma. He still has it. And of course we all still have it. And I, by now in screaming and crying and I open my eyes and I say enough, I have to forgive myself. I have to forgive myself. And I look in the mirror and I tell myself, I say, what do I need to let go of to transform this, to forgive myself? And immediately I hear a voice in the back of my head and it says shame and guilt. And I look in my body and I find the shame and guilt and I grab it and I throw it outside my body. And you know what happens? Nothing. <laughs> Nothing happens. Jeez. Nothing. I, I still feel the shame and the guilt. And, and then's when it happens. Then I feel this feeling in my body and it's black and it's oily and it's cruel and it's vicious. And I hear a voice and it tells me, Darren, you're never going to be able to get rid of this. You're going to live with this for the rest of your life. You mm. did this to your family. No one else did this. And this is like after 16 hours of screaming and crying, this voice is telling me no one else did this, Darren, you did this. You're the one that caused all this pain and anger in their life. And no one told you to do it. No one told you to be upset at them like you were. You did this. And you're never going to get rid of it. Never. And I realized that was the devil. The devil was my ego. The devil was me. I had done all these things. The devil had whispered in my ear, hey, you should be upset at your dad for these things he did to your mom, for the divorce. You should blame him for the rest of your life. And I realized 
I'm never going to get rid of this. Like I thought I'd had all these thoughts of what happens when we die, that we're saved, that we're transformed. That we have this infinite love we live in that we really are. And I, I thought to myself, wow, I'm wrong. Maybe we just live with this pain, this karma for the rest of our lives. And I looked in the mirror and I said, there's nothing I can do. That's it. I have to live with this the rest of my life. And I just accepted it. I said, this is my burden. I did this and there's nothing I can do. I can't blame anyone else. I can't transform it. This is something I have to live with for the rest of my life. And I surrendered and I accepted it. I accepted that's what I need to do. And I went back to my bed and I went to my bed and Amber, one of the, the guides there, one of the founders there at Awaken Your Soul, she came up and she says, Darren, do you want a psycho-spiritual journey? And I said, okay. And <laughs> she rubs, yeah, she, I was wearing a sleep mask and she sure. rubbed some cream on my fore, forehead. Yeah, sure. That's why I said, sure. I rubbed some, she rubbed some cream on my forehead and she said, Darren, tell me when you see a red dot on your forehead. So then I saw a red and purple diamond on my forehead. And she said, that's your third eye. She said, I want you to look through that and tell me when you see the universe. So I looked through it and I saw all the stars in the universe and I can still do that now. And she said, tell me when you see the moon. So I saw the moon and she said, Darren, jump to the moon. So I jumped and I flew to the moon and she said, see that rock? And I saw a rock and she said, that rock is your mom. And instantly mm. all the pain and shame and, and guilt and sadness instantly went away instantly the only way i can describe it is like you have the flu and then two weeks later you get better and you don't even remember what it felt like to have the flu that's what i felt like instantly i felt it in, in no pain at all and she said what does your mom look like and my mom was laughing she looked like she was in her 40s she looked beautiful she was wearing a red flamenco dress she looked super healthy and she was laughing and smiling and Amber said, go hug your mom. And I have not, and I went and hugged my mom and I cried and I said, Ma, I love you. I missed you so much. I love you, Ma. And I have not felt her presence like that since she died in wow. 2012. I, I have not felt that presence. She felt right there with me. And I cried and cried. And Amber said, Darren, I want you to put her in your heart. So then I went and put her in my heart. And then she said, Darren, tell me what she looks like in your heart. And I looked at my heart. And my heart was like a little house. And my mom was in there just laughing and then she said darren go back and she said there's your dad and there was my dad and he was 45 and he looked in shape and he looked he was laughing he had this very unique laugh and he was smiling and he was pointing at me that's how i used to do when he laughed a lot and i went and hugged him and i cried i said dad i'm so so sorry i love you i'm sorry i missed you so much dad it's so good to see you and i put my dad in my heart and he went and hugged my mom and they laughed and I went back and got my brother and myself and I got all my family and all my friends. I put you in my heart, Stuart. I put your, your son in mm. my heart. I put everybody in my heart. And every time I put someone in my heart, they would laugh. And like everybody in my heart, it was like huge now because I would look at my heart every time I put some in my heart and they were laughing and they were like, like I put like my friend Asha in my heart and, and my mom would be like, Asha, you know, and, and my, my mom would like go and hug people and my dad would hug people. I put my aunt in my heart and my dad went, Liddy. And it was like a huge party in my heart. And wow. I went, yeah, and it was so beautiful. And all I felt was love and happiness and joy at, at a 12 out of 10. As much pain and fear and guilt I felt before. Now it was replaced by love and happiness and I felt no shame or guilt. So I went and did this for about an hour and then I went, uh, Amber had left by then and I went to the bathroom and I went and looked at all those pictures 
And every, every picture I looked at, I laughed and I cried tears of joy. And I had nothing but good memories with every picture. Every picture that had just, just an hour ago been filled with shame and guilt and sadness and now been replaced with joy and happiness. And I said, you know what? I'm going to forgive myself. And I looked up and I looked in the mirror to forgive myself. And I realized I did not need to forgive myself. I had done it through my actions. I had done it through my actions. And then, Stuart, then's when it happened. I had an orgasm, not a sexual orgasm, but an orgasm in the sense that for 20 hours straight, I had nothing but tension in my body, just holding on to the shame and anger and guilt for just 18 to 20 hours straight. That's all I felt. And I'd released all that tension at once. And it had culminated in an orgasm, like an instant release of everything. Wow. And then's when it happened, Stuart. Then's when it happened. I had felt a presence enter my body. And it was a presence of joy and happiness, a presence I totally recognized. I could feel a white aura. I could see it. I could see it in the mirror, a white aura around my body. And I suddenly looked. I was looking at myself in the mirror. I was sitting straight up. I was like possessed. But I was young. I was full of energy. And later on, and, and this presence was talking to me. And it's just, I was having a conversation with myself. And what someone had told me later, like an Aboga integration coach, they told me, said, that was your soul. You had met your soul. And she said that happens a lot with Iboga. You have a conversation with your soul. And that's what had happened. I just had this conversation with my soul. And it just, it was just beautiful. It was funny. I was so funny. I was so forgetful. That those are the two things I remember. The three things I remember about my soul was funny, forgetful, and so full of love. Like I saw how God looks at us. The way God looks at us, the way my soul saw it was we are all just children full of fear and, and shame and guilt. And we're, we're possessed. All these things that we do, the thing that happened at the Capitol the other day, those people were possessed with fear and shame and guilt. And until we embrace it, until we really embrace it and let it be, just say it's okay, just let it be, it's going to possess us. And the thing about how we hurt each other, I would go into a room and if someone didn't look at me, because I always look at people in the eye, I would say, oh, they're a snobby person. And what would I do? I would be short with them or I would put up a barrier against them. And what I realized now was they had shame. They had some sort of shame and guilt, some sort of trauma that the way they reacted to the world was by not looking at people. Hmm. And how did I react to them? With more trauma. I gave them more trauma. So I yeah. realized we're just all traumatized and we're triggered by each other's trauma. And I realized that's how God sees us. And I realized I don't need to be that way anymore. Even my thoughts cause more trauma to people. Like when I see someone that won't look at me or they is acting weird like Trump or these people in the Capitol, I realize these are all just children. They're all scared little children. And we're in adult bodies, but they're children. And they're hurting themselves and they're hurting others and they don't realize it. And mm. someday this is going to come back and they haven't built the tools yet to learn how to embrace this and how to surrender and love and love. And it's going to be painful for them. But we yeah. all have the opportunity to do this. And, and yeah, that was my experience, Stuart. I ended up having like another hour and a half conversation with my soul, which was beautiful. Wow. It just filled me with love. Yeah, and every indecision that I had went away. I knew exactly what I needed to do in my life. I knew exactly how to do it. I knew that there was no fear. Whatever's meant to be will be. And I'll tell you something else, Stuart. I looked at everything that happened in my life, my mother, my father's passing, our interview. It all had meaning. 
every single thing, even my, my parents passing had meaning. They had to pass for me to hit rock bottom enough for me to transform, to then heal all of them, to, for them to me to choose the life that I want to choose, which is a life of service. Wow. You have to choose a life of service once you become awakened like this, because you look at everyone in history who's been awakened, um, Buddha, Jesus, Gandhi, you know, Nisargada, Ram Das, they all chose a life of service. And the reason you do that is because it would be selfish to like feel this awakening. And then what, go back to be being a stockbroker, go back and being an architect, like, you know, it's selfish. So, but the point is, is that I realized it all has meaning. I mean, mm. I know someone will probably listen to that and say, that's nuts, but I don't know. Yeah, but I you get it. there until you get there. You don't really understand it. Yeah. And it's hard to get there. And you have to have faith. I mean, for me, somehow, it's just like the hero's journey. I did all this process step by step, mushrooms, ayahuasca, iboga. I learned tools. I found accomplices, you, Dr. Scott, Verena, all these people awaken, uh, being, being true to you, like all these people were accomplices in my journey that taught me new skills and new powers to face the monster. Then I faced the monster and the monster was me. And I could not hmm. defeat the monster with all my tools, with all my learnings. I could not defeat the monster. And what ultimately defeated the monster was surrendering, was saying, all right, it's okay. I did this and I'm going to surrender to you. And when I surrender to it, it loses all its strength and our true, our true self comes out and we are more powerful than that monster, but we have to surrender to it. That's the wow. ultimate tool. Oh, That's huge, that. Darren. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is, and, and thank you. I appreciate what you do because each time you do this, you give someone an opportunity to face that monster and to re, re, re-understand what they've done in the journey they're on. It's powerful. We've done so much work on this. I mean, from starting off, you know, with a, with a, a hero's dose of, of mushrooms, even bigger, you know, and going that way and finding the ayahuasca and then having the foundation to allow things to come back up and then go find another treatment in that iboga ceremony is uh really incredible yeah it really is a hero's journey and i'm so glad you came on here and and shared all this it's really incredible yeah thank you thank you Stuart. it's um yeah it's incredible it's um thank you yeah of course is is there anything else i know we're getting to the end here is there anything else you want to share or put out there for anybody listening um you know all i want to say is that idea I mean, there's a lot of things, but I just want to say that idea that we're all just children. We're all just children. Remember that you're a child. The people that you're upset at, they're children too. Mm -hmm. We're adults, but we're really children. And the way we know this is we look at ourselves, like I'm 45. I look at my parents at my age, they were going through the divorce. And I look at myself and I was like, how would I, I would not know how to handle that. How would I have expected them to handle that? Like I'm still a child and they were children. And hopefully for me, that brings compassion. And hopefully for you, that can bring compassion. And the other thing I can say is, man, it's all part of the journey. Everyone that listens to this podcast has either taken a psychedelic or is thinking about taking a psychedelic. And I'm going to tell you, that's part of the process. They always tell you the medicine starts working before you take it. And that's absolutely true. And this is a very brave and courageous journey. And if you start it, you will move towards healing. And I commend all of you that are on that journey because it takes courage. It takes courage. Mm. Um, you know, in a technical sense, I will say talk to an integration coach. That always helps. 
Um, I think you said, you know, you're going to post my site, by all means, people can reach out to me, but there's always integration out there. That's tremendously powerful. There's a new organization starting called the Fireside Chat that they're going to be offering free integration and free a free hotline. Um, look that up, firesidechat.org. Um, there's me. I'm a psychedelicintegrationguide.com. There's Soul Quest has beautiful programs. There's Awaken Your Soul. But the point is, I just want to say is, it's a journey. And I've reached a part of that journey that I can tell you that there's a there's a happy ending. You know, I, I yeah. get touched, like I get shook up by saying it, but there is a happy ending. That's uh, beautiful to hear, Darren. That's beautiful. Well, thank you so much for coming back and doing this. I'm really I'm really grateful to you. Um, happy for you. Um, we're roughly the same age, but I still feel a little proud of you and what you've done here is just to see a human go through this, go through what you've gone through and, and come out like this is uh, really inspirational. So thank you so much for coming back here and sharing all this. Yeah, Stuart. And again, thank you so much for what you do, man. You were part of that journey for a lot of people. And I really appreciate I love you, brother. I really yeah, appreciate it. Yeah, I love you, you too. And I appreciate you saying that. That concludes this edition of the Stoned Ape Reports. Thank you for listening. Please follow us on Instagram at Stoned Ape Comedy and subscribe to our newsletter at www.stonedapecomedy.com. Again, thanks for listening and catch you next time, Stoned Apes.